Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is The Schwepp, and today we're speaking with Christian Wildberg, Andrew W. Mellon, Professor of Classics at UP Pittsburgh, a man who works on ancient Platonism, the history of philosophy, the history of science, and many, many things of interest to us here at the podcast, co-editor of Aperon, which is a journal that we love, and many book series for Brill and so on and so forth. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Christian, we are talking about the Hermetica and, and the Corpus Hermeticum in, in particular. And you published an article in 2013 entitled Corpus Hermeticum Tractate Three: The Genesis of a Genesis. So I wonder if you can tell me about what you did in that article and how you were sort of led to, to doing it. Yes. Obviously, I have been thinking about this for a very, very long time now, and it is very hard work. Work pro progresses very slowly because uh, one has to think about the text in an entirely different way. So what I uh, discovered together with my reading group was that, in uh, especially in, in uh, Corpus Hermeticum II, if you could just uh, talk about that for a moment, there were all of a sudden sentences that didn't make any any sense in the context. So uh, this is a text uh, about space and about cosmological motion. Uh, uh, it looks like um, ancient Greek natural philosophy, but the ideas expressed in it are very alien to what any Greek would be thinking. Uh, so in this text, you have uh, sentences interjected uh, which don't make any sense in the context. So for example, at some point, the author says, um, things that exist don't have a nature uh, of not to be able to exist. And the next sentence is, what do you mean by the nature not to be able to exist? And that question is not answered. It is just there. And, and you say, well, what is this doing there? And you realize, together with some other comments um, that are in Congress, that uh, something uh, must have happened here with the text. Uh, somebody must have interpolated the text in some way. And my, what my theory was at that point was that uh, we have a text here that has been annotated. Somebody worked on it, an ancient scribe, an ancient scholar, interested in hermetism, uh, read this text and then wrote something in the margin for himself. And this is not you know, unheard of. We have you know, examples of you know, marginal notes. But what then happened was th that at some point, this text, which must have been the archetype uh, of our collection uh, or part of it, got uh, you know, handed over to a scribe to make a clean copy of it. And what the scribe then did is he uh, simply copied the marginal note into the main text and sort of merged the two texts. Now, in this case, it was, it was quite easy. The scribe sort of took entire sentences and inserted them at a certain point you know, where he found them in the margin. But what I found in CH3 is that uh, uh, the marginal note was actually broken up into uh, sections, into um, maybe lines or half lines, and inserted randomly uh, into the text. And I call this mechanical interpolation. So a scribe wasn't actually thinking about what he was writing. He was just, as it were, copying from the main text into the margin, back into the main text, into the margin, and so on. You're weaving two texts together, 
in the result is that uh, you know it's gibberish. It, it makes hardly any sense. Now, um, what then happened is, uh, strangely, nobody has noticed this um, mm. before. Rather, what editors have been assuming is that the corruption of these texts occurred in the course of the medieval transmission. Right. Right. And, so, and then, so for our listeners, we can say there's lots of ways texts can become corrupt. One way is that um, medieval book hands, you often have a lot of letters that look the same as each other. So especially a reader who isn't, say, fluent in Greek or... Um, is just not paying attention, as you say, is snoozing on the job. They might see an E and think it's an O or whatever, and they'll just write the wrong letter. And then that those kind of errors can multiply over time with successive exactly. right. copying. Right. Uh, and, and that was the assumption. And then the cure, of course, would be somehow to amend the text and try to you know figure out what it should have read or might have read. And you have... Um, there are all kinds of scholars uh, trying out their hand, changing things, they need, uh, transposing sentences, adding sentences, bracketing sentences, rewriting words, and so on. So when you look at, for example, uh, you know, Locke's critical apparatus, there are all kinds of suggestions as to how to cure the text. Uh, what they did not realize is uh, that the transmission of the text is actually fine. It is as good as the translation of Plato or Aristotle or Homer or what have you. Um, the problem occurred much, much earlier, uh, you know, in late antiquity, before uh, the beginning of our medieval transmission. So what you have to do is, you know, think about the text uh, very hard. You have to meditate on it. It sometimes takes weeks. Uh, you, uh, you need to pull the two texts apart. Don't change the text at all. Uh, right. if, if possible. Be very, very conservative. You have to re go back to the manuscripts in order to sort of see what actually the manuscript was saying uh, and ignore all the emendations for the time being and try to just simply pull the text apart in such a way that you get a clean text on the left and a marginal note uh, on, on the right. And uh, lo and behold, this happens and uh, is possible in 95% of the cases and you get a, a coherent, clean main text, which has a you know, very intelligible hermetic doctrine, and then uh, some kind of marginal comment on this. Just one brief uh, add, addition to this, in uh, Corpus Emeticum three, which is a, which is a generalist account, what happens there is that the person who read it missed certain um, stages, aspects of generation, of creation, that he found in the Bible, and he added those. Right? Animals are being created, and, and so on. Uh, so, so he inserted all these things in order to make this account uh, congruent with the uh, Genesis 1. And the second thing uh, that happened was the person who read the account was interested in astrology and thought that astrology was an important um, cultural discovery of mankind that would you lead out, out, out of darkness and, and, and you know, lead to cultural progress. And these two elements are, are quite alien to the, to the text. And if you take them out, you have a, a wonderful, compact, concise, um, uh, hermetic doctrine, uh, hermetic genesis. Fascinating. Let me go back and try to make, in simple, in simple graphic terms, a picture of what went on with this 
process of mechanical interpolation. interpolation. And tell me if I've got it right. So you imagine a, a nice block of text on a page with mm-hmm. line, 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 line. And there's a nice generous margin. And in that margin, some second hand, like in this case, someone, well, we'll talk about who this um, interpolator yeah. might have been, but someone who has, say, an interest in astrology is reading the, the text. And then they write a little note saying, you have to understand the nature of the stars because this is how mankind will make progress mm-hmm. and blah. That little statement will have been commenting on a given line of text, but it will extend over a few lines. It yes. might it might well be a little three a little block of text. So then the mechanical interpolator is reading the line of the main text do, 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 to the end. Then they yes. come to the first line of the comment, put that in, then go back to the next line of the main text, bup, 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 to the end, put in another chunk of the um, marginalium, and then repeat that. So that's how these marginalia get chopped up into yes. little pieces in the main text. Thank you. You got it right. So if you are if you are right with this, and I'm and I'm no doubt you're right, at least in some cases, um, mm-hmm. we would even be able to reconstruct the size of the lines of the original manuscript. Yeah, it is very tempting to try to uh, find out how long the lines were. And in, in some cases it, it works, but, but in other cases it doesn't. So I'm not, I'm not terribly confident that, that, that this can be done in every case. I think in, in, in uh, CH3, I, I did try to, to figure this out and they came up with some reasonable you know, size of the main text and, and size of the margin. So it, it can be done, but it's, uh, it's not um, something that is you know, doable all the time. And maybe not the most interesting result you're going to find anyway. Now, tell us about your project that's followed on this kind of discovery. Yes. So the project uh, involves a new text and translation of the, of the Greek Hermetica. And, um, maybe the Asclepius too, but, but that, that's, a, that's a bit of a problem because that text of course, has been translated into Latin, and who knows what happened in that process. So it won't be so easy to identify um, uh, the main text in the marginalia because that, that is a translation. So I have to think about that. But I'm concentrating for the time being on the Greek texts. Um, so why why would anybody you know need a new translation uh, of the Corpus Medicum? There's so many of them; it doesn't seem uh, necessary to have another one. Uh, well. Uh, the, the new translation is motivated, of course, by this, by this new text. It, it is not the case, Knox did a wonderful job, by the way. Uh, it is not the case that he did not consult the, the manuscripts properly. I very often to check up on his readings, and I never found really a, a mistake. And it is also not the case that there are other manuscripts that we have discovered in the meantime. So the, the necessity of a new text is entirely motivated by this finding that there is a, a widespread corruption that affects all treatises, which has not been recognized and which has been, as it were, addressed and cured uh, in a way that, uh, that obscures the whole issue even further. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Walter Scott, where he is uh, the one who... Um, who took this uh, art of amending uh, um, the text to new heights. Right? He basically rewrites the text, and that's what many people are actually doing. Well, and the danger, of course, is that you could fall into some Scottism in your, in your yes. project, right? 
Uh, yes, and uh, so I'm, I, I am, I'm very careful. I hardly ever follow Scott. He, had, he thought very deeply about the text. And sometimes he has some interesting points to make, but Scott is not somebody who is influencing my, my text at all, and I don't want to follow his footsteps in, in this way. And the difference, I think, between us uh, is, uh, although I am also shuffling the text around as he does, I'm not rewriting it. I am reading the text as it is in the manuscripts. And uh, many of the changes that I'm introducing is just going back to the manuscript reading and not accepting anything that Nock or Scott or Tornabos or any of these people have uh, suggested. So you're reading of the manuscript tradition, which is a very narrow manuscript tradition, right? So it's actually, in, in, in that sense, it's on this, the face of it, very simple, because you don't have to visit 15 different libraries all around the world yes. and try to create a stemma. But a, you're actually doing a very conservative reading, except for yes. the fact that you're chopping bits out of the text, like quite a bit of text you're just removing. And having done that, you're left with a, a readable text. Right. Now, so it's very conservative, but very radical also. Yeah, yeah. Now, is the plan to publish this as a critical text with facing English translation? Yes. Okay. Now, would you publish the scolia in this text as well, the things you've cut out? Oh, yes. They, are, they will appear in the margin of the translation. Perfect. Because that, if you weren't going to do that, it would be such a loss, right? So, oh, yes. to, so you'll be reproducing a, a critical text of, in a way, a lost text, like an earlier part of the mm -hmm. manuscript tradition before these marginal notes were incorporated into the text. Yes. Which is fascinating. Now, you mentioned earlier before we started recording that you're almost done with this project. So maybe we can whet people's appetite a bit more for um, what's to come. Well, first of all, does this mean that Nocfis Dugier's Corpus Hermeticum is going to be just outmoded? No longer the go-to text for scholars to use. I mean, you certainly won't be, you won't be reproducing all their apparatus criticus, right? Because you'll be ignoring a lot of the emendations that were made to try to fit around things that you now think are for a completely, they don't make sense, not for the reasons people thought, but for a completely different reason. Yes. Uh, so I, I know I, I, I do um, integrate the, the old apparatus into, into my okay. uh, publication. So in the end, I think it doesn't make much of a difference which text you use. The text is going to be exactly the same, and with, you know, the line numbers are going to be the same. And I'm, I'm, you know, keeping the page numbers and so on of knock in in my in my text, so that people you know can easily cross reference yeah. uh, the text and and work with it. I think what you will have is uh, you want to have both editions so, uh, on hand. Uh, hopefully, I mean, it might supersede knock. Um, it depends on how is it accepted and how the scholarly world reacts to this uh, mm. kind of find. But I, uh, when I give papers on this, just to, as, an, as an, a little note, I often had reactions from uh, other classicists who are also editing texts, who said, oh, now I understand what happened in my text. I hadn't thought about this possibility, and now I sort of see. So the, I think this is actually a, a phenomenon that is quite common in our textual transmission, but it hasn't been sufficiently uh, taken into account. Yeah, it has been. I mean, I, I want to say that Westerink, in his mm -hmm. work on many a late Platonist, does note this from time to time. He, he'll say, this is a, clearly a scolium that has entered into the text and should be elided. So it's not as though no one's 
been aware of this phenomenon. They've been aware of it forever. It's just no one has said, okay, let's take this phenomenon very seriously vis-a-vis the Corpus Hermeticum and see what um, results pop out. Let's talk about this, the interpolator. First of all, do do you think that there's one marginal notes writer? Do you get, it's like a bit of an extension of the question of are you a Unitarian reader of the Corpus Hermeticum in the first place? It's like, are you a Unitarian reader of the commentator on the Corpus Hermeticum? Yeah, that is a difficult question. So, I mean, it it seems to me that the um, Corpus Hermeticum itself is not the work of one author. Hmm. Uh, So so there are many authors um, um, at work. The commentator... I don't think I, what I ever found is notes in the margin in one treatise that have to be attributed to two different people. I, I don't think I have multiple readers in uh, any single treatise. But since the treatises themselves are not, you know, homogenous, they don't have a single author. Um, I'm I'm not entirely sure that we have the same the same reader in, in all cases. Maybe this is something I should think about a little bit more. My first impression is that the reader is somebody who is sympathetic to Hermetism. So um, uh, there are some critical notes, but very often there are cross-references that have intruded or uh, clarifications, sometimes coming from a different kind of angle. As you know, know, some Hermetica have a positive, optimistic outlook, and others are more pessimistic and dark. Uh, so you, you get these different voices uh, distributed over the main text and, uh, and the commentary in the margin. So um, I'm not entirely sure. It, it seems to me that from what I've seen so far is that these are people sympathetic to hermetism. They are uh, people who are a little bit more steeped in Greek philosophy. Than the uh, hermetic writers. Than the, uh, yes. So, so the Hermetists, the way I see them, is they are using the philosophy, the, the vocabulary of Greek philosophy, of Stoic and Platonic philosophy, and sometimes Aristotle, but they use it in a different sense. Uh, they have their own meanings uh, attached to these words, uh, which differ from the meanings of mainstream philosophy. And then the, the, the person in the, in the margin is a little bit more uh, adept uh, and familiar with Greek philosophy, and that is sometimes gives um, uh, rise to to the to the critique, to the criticism. You know, what do you mean by this? You know, it doesn't make any sense. The other observation is, I don't think these uh, were Christians, so I, I don't think there's a you know a Christian as a reader uh, in the margin. So these must be you know other pagans at the time who were interested from a Greek background, interested in Hermetic doctrine. Now, that's very interesting for a number of uh, reasons. If we don't have a Christian here, the use of, the, the emendation of the Hermetic cosmological story to add elements from the book of Genesis is interesting, right? You'd, yes. of course, expect it from a Christian, but if, if you don't feel this is a Christian, what do you think is going on there? Obviously, this is asking you to speculate a little bit, but uh, please do if you feel inclined. Well, very often when you, when you look at the vocabulary that is being used uh, in the margins, it, it is very often a late 
so convoluted late kind of Greek, you know, the, the register of the Greek changes. And uh, when you look up the word, you know, where else does it occur? Uh, Philo is somebody who crops up quite a bit. Hmm. So um, uh, I'm not saying that Philo is one of the, the readers of the Hermetica, although that's not impossible, but it, it, it could well be sort of some kind of uh, Greek-Jewish community. Okay. Uh, if, it, if it's possible that Philo is a reader, just as a side note, of, mm. of the Hermetica, that would mean that you are very agnostic about the dating of these texts, right? Because we can date Philo to the first century with pretty, yes. Yes. pretty surely. So that would mean that these are very old. Yes, indeed. Um, I, 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 um, I'm not convinced that we have here texts from the time uh, of the you know, second or third century when they first become, as it were, uh, when, they, when they're registered in other authors. I think we have something that is uh, is quite a bit earlier. Um, to my mind, I'm thinking of the Hermetica as something that was written in uh, in Hellenistic um, Alexandria and Hellenistic e- Egypt around the same time, maybe a little bit later, maybe a reaction to the Septuagint. So, if you think about the Septuagint as the attempt of uh, the Jewish community to you know, step forward uh, and make a claim for you know, cultural significance by translating the holy book into Greek. In the same way, it could be that uh, Egyptian priests are coming forward with hermetic tractates in order to make the same kind of cultural claim. Hmm. As so, far back as that. Because yes. um, Christian Bull, and uh, I know others agree with him, has recently really wanted to locate these theoretical hermetica in a, in a priestly milieu in Egypt, but specifically in a priestly milieu that has been disenfranchised after the crisis of the third century. So these are Egyptian priests who suddenly really don't have a job anymore and are kind of creating a new um, religious movement, what we would nowadays call a new religious movement if you know we were studying it nowadays. Um, you don't find that compelling? It's a possibility. I don't, yeah. I don't find it compelling. I, uh, I mean, I, I'm quite convinced uh, that the uh, that the, the doctrines expressed in the Hermetica are actually uh, quite old, hmm. and it is not a rehash of uh, of Greek philosophy. Um, it is something entirely different, which we really haven't fully understood yet. I would be careful to to put it. Uh, to put it late uh, in the you know second or third century, I, I think we are dealing with something that is that is older. Hmm. Now you don't see a Christian reader, but you do see a um, perhaps a, a, a Jewish reader. Um, yes, that's a, that's a very interesting educated uh, speculation. Um, how do you? One thing that's always uh, interested me is that we we get in some of the Hermetica, in the Corpus Hermeticum, a, a kind of logos metaphysics or a, a reference to a logos, which is has a ontological place in the scheme of things, rather than logos meaning thought or logos meaning spoken communication or whatever. And some people have looked at that and said, well, like Christians, like Latantius, have looked at that and said, aha, Hermes is a Gentile prophet. But then more, more recently, among scholars, people have looked at that and said, hmm, this could be a creeping Christian doctrine somehow finding its way into the text, or this could be a, an emendation by a Christian scribe or something like that. 
But you don't see that. And that's interesting to me because, of course, the next logical step would be, well, why don't we read Philo, who also has a logos, a very striking logos doctrine, and why don't we think he's been tempered with by Christians? No one thinks that about Philo. So you can have this kind of logos metaphysics in a completely non-Christian setting. Absolutely. Hmm. Which, which then has interesting reflections when we start to think about Johannine Christianity, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Gospel of John, and wh- mm-hmm. what kind of ingredients went into that oh, yes. mm-hmm. whole thing. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I mean, this is how, mainly in the Poimandres, which of course is a very, very complex text. Uh, in that text, we have, um, I think, another phenomenon and that is, you know, straightforward conscious money, um, interpolations. So that, uh, that there are, um, in addition to, you know, these marginalia that have crept into the main text, there are, in some treatises, and especially in the Poimandras, entire passages where you see, wait a minute, this passage interrupts the narrative, introduces an entirely new point, is written in a different register, has a different focus, has a different voice, um, makes a, a certain point that doesn't really belong here. It is, it is something that has been added, but has been consciously added into the text, and is a coherent text. And uh, I flag that. I usually say, here, look, um, this text you know, somehow interrupts the narrative. If you connect the end of the previous passage, which what comes later, you know, it's seamless. Right. It makes a totally different point. Uh, doesn't really belong here. So, so we have that too. And the Poimandres is a difficult text be precisely because of this reason, because we have some doctoring going on. Right. And again, do you see a Christian doctoring or something else? Hard to say. Hard to say, but I don't think it's Christian. I, th- I agree with those uh, uh, people who, who don't really discover anything that is uh, unequivocally Christian in these texts. I, I, I agree with them. There is. There's nothing there that you couldn't explain in other uh, in other ways along the lines that you have just outlined. Now, our commentator, getting back to the the marginalia, is a, a big fan of astrology. Yes. Um, and so, what what do you make of that? Uh, well, I found that very interesting. Um, I wrote an article on on astrology in the in the Hermetica, hmm. uh, which has come out this year. And um, you might have thought that there's a lot of astrology uh, in Hermes Trismegistus, you know, that he is sort of the arch-astrologer, uh, you know, iconic, uh, as it were, for this kind of thinking. But the, uh, the fact is that there isn't uh, all that much. Hmm. And what there is, is often something that can be relegated uh, to the margin. So how did astrology become part of this tradition? I think the, uh, the reason is, that the earliest hermetic texts give you uh, a metaphysics, a solar kind of theology, which is amenable to then being expanded into a full-blown astrological system. Right. So just to be clear, by the earliest hermetic texts, you mean earliest theoretical hermetic texts, right? Yes. Because we also, of course, have very early astrological texts, which are hermetica, but they're not the genre of hermetica we're talking about here. No, no, I'm, I'm talking about the so-called philosophical hermetic, mm. uh, which, which were, you know, assuming that they were undoctored at some time, what they give us is a, is a metaphysics, um, um, a, a way of thinking about the world and, and about God and creation that 
gives you uh, the the uh, theoretical framework into which you can then read in you know astrological practice hmm. could it be that the astrological reader who's making these comments is perhaps also steeped in the practical hermetica and is trying to bring the two together and it's like well this this is great but it doesn't bring in the other works of hermes that i've read such as the lost hermes text from you know sometime in the hellenistic period when hermes lays out the whole system of uh, horoscopic astrology and right. so we need to we need to bring this back into the theoretical hermetica do you think there's yeah. perhaps that going on that's possible uh, it, sometimes um, you know, when you uh, when you look up uh, words that are being used in the in the margins, you find uh, parallels in the uh, magical papyri, for example. So, yes, there, it could be practitioner um, right. who who's interested in this and wants to combine the two genres. That's very possible. Hmm. Brilliant. Th- thank you very much. This has been a fascinating um, discussion of the text, and cautions us to be very very careful in our reading of these these old books what what have we not talked about that you think is important to talk about in this context what have we missed out uh, maybe a brief note about stobaios mm, please yeah uh, right just stobaios was this uh, fifth century polymath who wrote um, a, a, an enormous work for the education of his son and in these uh, excerpts uh, there are also excerpts from the hermetica and sometimes we have an overlap especially in in uh, Corpus Medicum too, uh, and the um, preferred way to handle Stobias by editors is to give him preference and say, "Oh, you know, here we have an early uh, witness of uh, of the text, and lo and behold, Stobias is completely intelligible. You know, the text sort of makes makes sense and is much smoother, and so on." What they do is uh, what not does is when Stobias is available, he switches over to Stobias and ignores more or less the manuscript reading. And uh, that is a mistake. I think one can show that Stobaios himself struggled already with the Greek of the Hermetica and, and smoothes it out you know, for the benefit of his own readers, which is you know, his son. Uh, so so the, the corruption, uh, this is actually proof uh, of the fact that the corruption in the manuscripts is before Stobaios and not uh, you know, some later medieval tradition. So I just wanted to bring that in, uh, Stobaios is, is, um, is not the authority that we think Yes. Well, that's that's very good to know. We've just had the publication of David Litwa's Hermetica yes. 2, translating all the Hermetica that got left out by Brian Copenhaver's Hermetica into English. All the excerpts of Stobias are there, but yes. I, th- I think the trend now is to, if you're talking about theoretical Hermetica, to try to, to cover everything, right? So we have, we've had the Armenian stuff brought into the conversation. Mm-hmm. We have Stobias, we have the Coptic material, um, mm-hmm. even the, the little papyrus fragments, and, and try to consider it all at the same time. But um, as you say, it may be that we need a serious overhauling of the whole, the whole tradition. If I could ask you to, well, no, I won't ask you to speculate on that. It's, it's, too, it's too impossible to speculate. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. This story of of a very early intervention in in the manuscript tradition, which then gets carried on from antiquity, or at least mm-hmm. late antiquity, so mm-hmm. before the fifth century or during the fifth century, at the latest, because we find it in Stobias, right? Yes. This would mean, surely, that our corpus hermeticum was a corpus in the fifth century. Yes, that's possible. Mm-hmm. It's possible. You you don't think it's it's sort of proof because the question we know that there were 
it's always been known, as long as people have been working on this stuff, that there were corpora circulating in antiquity of theoretical hermetica. Various people refer to them in antiquity, but they don't tell us what's in them, so we don't... And these works don't often just have a title like General Discourse or Hermes to Tat. Even if you got a title, you wouldn't know what text it was. But it seems to me that if we could show some identifiable interpolations in the texts in Stobias, that would mean he's working from the same manuscript tradition as the Corpus Hermeticum, right? So that would mean that the yes. Corpus Hermeticum, as we know it, is actually a, a definitely a late antique or, a, or antique anthology. Yes, it, it, I, my, my thinking about this is, is one, of, one of the collections that was circulating that made it into the medieval tradition. I mean, there must have been many collections, and, and this, is, this is one of them. I'm not sure if it is exactly the same that Mr. Bios had at hand. I don't know. Um, it's possible. It, it seems that he is reading uh, the same text of Corpus Medicum II that we are reading, and that he is, um, you know, struggling with it and doctoring it. Brilliant. Christian Wildberg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and uh, tell us about your fascinating work. I can't wait for this to come out. Do you have a publication date? I don't have a publication date, but I have an enormous amount of pressure to get this uh, to get this done. So, okay, well that's uh, good. That's good. <laughs> to, I hope to finish it next year, and then it will come out soon afterwards. Brilliant. Thanks again. Stay esoteric. Thank you, Thank you very much. All right.